0: You know, many people, whether they're Christians or not, believe that Jesus was a good teacher. Most people are willing to admit that. Um, But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've found him to be much more than just a good teacher. And so sometimes we kind of forget that he was an amazing teacher. I mean, Jesus was incredible, and he used so many wonderful tools to teach people, and he used stories, which we often refer to them as parables, where he would tell a story that would draw the audience in to reveal some kingdom truth. Jesus used questions. Jesus asked so many questions of people. Jesus used irony and humor and metaphors and illustrations, and one of the things that Jesus used with complete expertise was paradox, and he said things like, living is dying, And if you want to be last, then you should be first. And if you want to be first, you should be last. Giving is receiving. Losing is finding. The least are the greatest. The poor are the rich. Weakness is strength. And serving is ruling. And for Jesus, using these paradoxical phrases and statements were ways of communicating essential spiritual truths. And the power of a paradox is that, as one author says, it just has this dissonance when it falls upon your ears that just bothers you. And you sit with it for a second and go, the last will be first and the first will be last. That doesn't even make sense. Is he listening to himself, right? Like this sort of sense of like, what is he talking about? Yet often as we sit with it, we realize there's truth. And this morning, the third beatitude really is a paradox of sorts. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. He's basically saying blessed are the nobodies because they get everything. They gain it all. And as I've been preparing for this message this week, I've, I've been asking myself a few questions. I want to ask you these questions. First thing is this. Would you describe yourself as meek? Would you describe yourself as meek? Would others describe you as meek? Your spouse, your children, your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors. And then the last question I've kind of been wrestling with all week is this. Would you even want people <laughs> to describe you as meek? And I think the hesitation with that last question is probably because we don't know really what it means to be meek. And this morning, I want us to learn three things about biblical meekness or what it means to be the meek. And I think this is so important that we lean in because Jesus says there's a blessing upon those who are meek. And the blessing is tremendous. They get it all. They inherit the earth. Everything everybody's after belongs to the meek. And so the first thing I want us to learn this morning about meekness is this. That meekness isn't weakness, but it's a willingness to trust God's plan more than my power. Now, this past Wednesday night, we were here together for our Start Together prayer and singing time. It's a wonderful time. We're going to do two more. So come out this Wednesday night at 6.30 for that. But one of our prayer team members, I don't remember who it was, Connie or Linda, but one of them was praying into this beatitude. And in the beginning of their prayer, they said... To be meek is not to be weak. And I thought, they're preaching my message. There it goes. They're already, they got my notes somehow. But you know, when we think of the word meekness, the reason why some of us are probably like, I don't know if I want people to call me meek is because we think of spineless individuals, people without courage, people who won't speak up, people who are weak, people who are shy, people who are quiet, people who fade away in the background or people who get stepped on by other people. But one of the commentaries I read said this, you have to understand that meekness is not not weakness. It it does not denote that you're a coward or that you're spineless, that you're timid, or even that you're willing to keep the peace at any cost. That's not meekness. It does not suggest indecisiveness, wishy-washiness, a lack of confidence. Meekness is not just introverts. And meekness cannot be reduced to mere niceness. And in classical Greek, when when the Greeks would use this word that Jesus uses here for meek, they would almost always use it as an adjective to describe something. And some of the ways that they would do it, so they would use meek to describe an animal, but what they were saying is it's a tame animal. Or medicine, meaning it was a soothing medicine. A word that someone would speak, meaning it was a mild word. Or a breeze that was gentle. So one of the best ways for us to understand meekness is that it's an adjective that affects the way we do everything. So meek people don't, it's not that meek people don't show up or speak up, it's how they show up and it's how they speak up. And one of the simplest definitions of meekness is that meekness is power under control. Meekness is power under control. Now I have three girls and so uh, my, my, the way I play with them growing up is very different than if I had three boys. Agreed? Right? And so, like, just the other day, I'm playing Barbies with Madeline. Like, you don't, you don't usually do that with a seven-year-old boy. But that's what, that's what Maddie wants to do. Now, if I had sons, like, Fuad here has a couple sons. And so when he plays with his boys, I bet it's a little more interactive. <laughs> I bet there's wrestling and there's, some, and there's some grabbing and there's some pinning and there's some some that sort of My girls aren't into that. They don't, I tried. They're not interested. They don't want to do it. They've seen me. They see how big I am. They're like, I'm not in. And so, but boys are dumb. They'll, they'll wrestle anybody. And so they'll, they'll wrestle. And so, you know, I've not witnessed Fuad wrestling his, his boys, but I have to imagine that although Fuad is stronger and more powerful and fully capable of pinning them and punishing them and winning and then rubbing it in their face, he doesn't do it, right? Am I right? He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because he loves them and he wants them to enjoy the interaction. And so when you see a father wrestling with his son or his daughter or playing sports against his children, often what you see, and same things with moms, of course, often what you see is power under control. They have the power to dominate and to win and to destroy, but they have power under control. So if meekness is power under control, we have to ask ourselves the question, whose control is it under? We might say, well, it's under my control, and that's partially true because we are talking about self-control. But you have to remember what Paul says in Galatians 5, and 23. Self-control is not a fruit of your effort. Self-control is not a fruit of your desire. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So ultimately, control, whose control is power really under for a meek person it's truly, really under the power of God. Now, what does this look like? Let me give you some examples. This idea of a willingness to trust in God's plan more than in my power. One, one way it looks is a willingness to trust God's plan, even when you know you could manipulate a situation to go your direction. Even when you know you could use your power, your ability, your persuasive words, your influence, your authority to get your way. Meekness says, I'm willing to embrace God's plan more than trust in my power. And I've learned that when things don't go our way, we, try, we kind of fall into two categories of people. There's the screamers, and there's the schemers. And the screamers um, blow up, they're explosive, they're loud, they yell, it's, it's not very useful, but it's very loud. Um, and then the schemers, and sometimes we're both of these things, we scream and then we scheme. Um... But the schemers, and I fit more in this category if I'm being honest, the schemers immediately go, how do I fix this? How do I spin this? How do I make this work for me? And what we do in that moment is we lean into our natural ability to try to make things happen. And what we learn from scripture is the meek trust in God's plan more than they trust in their power. And they're willing to trust in God's plan. We step. What that means is you're going to sometimes find yourself stepping away from opportunities to make things happen for yourself and a self-serving agenda because it's about you and not about God or others. Now listen, that won't make sense in this world at all. In fact, if you're new to the faith and you're hearing this for the first time, you're probably immediately thinking, "You do that, you'll never get anywhere in life. You got to fight for yourself." And I understand that there are times to speak up, but I'm talking about where does your trust lie? Do you ultimately trust in God's plan that maybe that opportunity is not for you and it's okay, or do you trust in your power to force your way into that opportunity and through that opportunity? It's a willingness to trust in God. It's a willingness to serve God's purposes and not my own, using power for the good of others. In the next point, we're going to see that Jesus had so much power, but he never used it for himself. He always used it for others. It's the famous Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. And so the idea of meekness is that we feel the full weight of our responsibility to use our power, not just to serve ourselves, but to serve others. And it's also a willingness and this will sound so counterintuitive in our society. It's a willingness to be overlooked. And I'm not saying you're eager to be overlooked. I'm just saying you're, you're, you're okay with it. People don't have to notice everything you do. You don't have to get applauded for everything at work. Your boss doesn't have to notice every good thing you do. You don't have to be get parent of the year award from your kids. It's never coming, by the way. It's never coming. <laughs> but you're willing to be overlooked, unheard, to not be right, to not get things your way, to not be in control how and why, Because you know that God sees you and that God hears you and that God makes all things right and that God is in control. Here's what you do. You shift from being a person who walks into a room to get your way and says, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you know how important I am? Do you know who I am to someone who walks into a room and says in their heart, he knows who I am. And that's enough. And it allows us to walk in this sort of meekness that Jesus is talking about. The second thing that we see here is that meekness isn't about you not having power. It's about power not having you. Very different, right? So meekness is not weak, right? It's not that you don't have any power. It's about power doesn't have you. Well, look at Jesus as an example. Jesus had amazing power. And whether you believe what's written about him in the Gospels or not, here's what I believe. That Jesus had the sort of power to heal people and to speak life. Jesus had the sort of power to pray for those and to touch those who were blind and their eyes were open. This is the sort of things that Jesus did that were well documented, not just in the Bible, but by everyone who was alive back then. Jesus showed his power over nature when he walked on the water or turned water into wine. Jesus showed his power over evil when he cast demons out of people who were being tormented by evil spirits. And Jesus ultimately showed his power over death by raising his friend Lazarus from the dead who had been dead and buried for four days. But as cool as that is, Jesus didn't just show power with his healings and his signs and his wonders and his miracles. Jesus had powerful influence with his teaching. When Jesus taught, people would go, he teaches like no one I've ever heard before, with full authority. And then even on the night that Jesus is arrested, unfairly tried and ultimately executed on a Roman cross, when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane to find Jesus and this bunch of these strong Roman soldiers walk into the garden and march up to Jesus and they say, what are you, who are you here for? What are you doing here? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus simply says, I am he. One of the gospel accounts says, they all just fell over. That's kind of a weird thing. But here's, what I, here's why I think it's included and here's why I think it happened. Because Jesus wanted his disciples to know that no matter what happens from this point forward, it's not because I don't have power. It's because power doesn't have me. And then Jesus said to them, I could call 12 legions of angels down right now, and we, and this wouldn't happen. And Jesus stood in front of Pilate and said, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. So you're talking about a man of unprecedented power, but when you study his life, Jesus was so meek. He was so mild. He was so gentle. Just think about who was comfortable to approach him. You'll know a lot about whether or not you're meek based on how comfortable people are to approach you. People were so comfortable to approach Jesus. Look at who came to him, the children, who were nobodies in society that time, who had no status. The women who had very little status in that society in time. The marginalized, the Gentiles, the foreigners, the outsiders, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. These are the ones that felt comfortable coming to Jesus because they knew that they would not find a harshness in him, but a welcome and a meekness, and a gentleness about him. And Jesus himself talks about himself in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. And specifically, he was talking to religious people here who were trying so hard to be good, and they're so exhausted by their efforts to keep the rules, and so exhausted by their own righteousness, he's saying, stop. Stop trying to be good. Stop trying to keep the rules. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to impress God. Come to me, those who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for our souls, as found in Jesus. And then he goes on to describe himself. Take my yoke upon you. This this sort of imagery, this illustration, this metaphor of two animals yoked together. One strong, proven animal and one young, unproven animal would be yoked together so that the young, unproven animal would would learn how to do the work. And really, the strong animal would do 95% of the work. And the little animal was just along for the ride, but it was so that they could learn how to do things right. This is the illustration that Jesus is using here. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke yourself to me. I'll do the work. You just come along. Learn from me, and then he describes himself this way, and I, I wish I could describe myself this way most days, but the truth is, is I can't always. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here's what's amazing about Jesus. In respect to his own person, he never was vindictive. He never retaliated. But in respects to other people, he was a lion. Think about it. One of the commentaries says it this way. When Jesus was mocked and spat upon, he answered nothing. He trusted his father. When he was confronted by Pilate, he kept silent. When his friends betrayed him and fled, he uttered no reproach. There's no record that Jesus ever spoke badly of his disciples who all bailed on him. When Peter denied him, Jesus restored him to fellowship and service. When Judas came and kissed him in the Gethsemane, the betrayer's kiss, Jesus called him friend, and he meant it. Jesus was never insincere, and even as he was dying, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In all of this, Jesus, meek and mild, he was in control. He radiated power of someone who was in control, but was also meek. First Peter, many years later, the apostle Peter, who was the one who denied Jesus, was thinking back about this night, and he said this in First Peter 2.23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten because he trusted the one who would judge justly. Now think about our society today. When we're reviled, what do we do? We got to give it right back. When we suffer, when we suffer, we we do not, Jesus says that he he did not threaten. When we're suffering, we'll immediately threaten. We lash out. And here's Jesus taking this all on himself as this meek, mild man, but also full of power. But when it came to the welfare of others, Jesus was a lion. He would rebuke the Pharisees. You know that Jesus' harshest, hardest words were reserved for you and me, the people who go to church, religious people. That's who Jesus had the hardest words for. Not people who are outside of the kingdom, but people who claim to be inside the kingdom, but were not living the kingdom values. He rebuked the Pharisees because of the hardness of their heart when he healed a man's hand on the Sabbath in Matthew 12. He was angry when his disciples prevented the little children from coming to him in Mark 10. He made a whip, John 2, and he drove the money changers from the temple. He called Peter Satan after, after Peter tried to get in his way of his heavenly mission. But all of this power and strength came from a Jesus who was the incarnation of gentleness, who could say of himself, I am, I am lowly of heart. So when we bring all this together, what we have is this amazing picture of Jesus. And here it is, listen. Jesus had all the power, but the power had none of him. Jesus Christ had all the power, but none of the power had any of him. And power is so dangerous to our hearts. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that my girls and I, over winter break, we watched The Hobbit, right? And so the, the reward for watching The Hobbit is watching Lord of the Rings, right? Because The Hobbit's kind of slow and boring, but then The Lord of the Rings is like awesome. And so I told my girls, just stick with it. We're going to get to The Lord of the Rings, and we're going to watch it. And so we're watching The Lord of the Rings, and of course Gollum is this just sort of unforgettable creature who has the ring of power, but really who has who, <laughs> The ring of power has Gollum. And in this story, J.R.R. Tolkien does us this great service by showing us what happens on the outside of a creature is actually what happens on the inside of us when power has us. And so this ring of power literally decimates and destroys Gollum's physical features. At the beginning of the third movie, The Return of the King, you see the story happen where he goes from being this relatively normal guy to being this weird, disturbing creature that's hard to look at And what Tolkien is saying is as disgusting and gross and hard as that is to watch, what's happening inside of you is even worse when power has you. It will destroy you and decimate you. And here's one of my concerns. Power is so dangerous because it gives Christians and religious people and moral people and well-meaning people a way to do things that are right but a wrong way to do them. You know, you can do the right things and fight for the right things but do it all in the wrong way. One of my concerns about the church for the last couple of years has been, are we fighting the way Jesus has taught us to engage? Or are we fighting the way the world fights? Who are we taking our cues from? Are we trying to do it the way? Yeah, we're fighting for good things. I believe we're fighting for the right things. But the way we fight for those things matters too. Jesus didn't just come with a message. He came with a method. There is not just the essence of his message. There is the ethic of the way he taught us to live. And as Christians, we need to be able to fight for the right things, but maintain the meekness of Jesus in our hearts, even as we operate in that boldness. You know, here's, the, here's sort of the irony about power, is that you don't actually have to have any power for power to have you. We, get off, we let ourselves off the hook on this conversation because we look at people who have lots of power. And we say, oh yeah, come on, David preach about that power. Look at all those government leaders and what power does to them. And look at those company leaders and look at all that uh, sort of greed uh, you know, at, the, at the national level. And, look at, and we're like, look at all those people in power. That's the problem with our country. But the problem is that power, you don't have to have power for power to have you. You could have just power over one person and it could be enough to control you and own you. I think about people who go to work and they have no power at work. They're the they're they're lowest on the rung, they're pushed around all day. They get told what to do. They hate their boss. They hate their job. They have no power. But then they come home, and they, and because they've had no power all day, they come home, and they start to exercise power over their children. They find a dog to kick. They, they, they find a kid to yell at. They, found a, they find a spouse to abuse. And that's what happens is that if you can't get power at work, you're going to get it at home. You're going to find somewhere. And then there's people who say, I can't even get it at home. So what do you do? You jump online. And you use your power or your need for power, your appetite for power, to bully other people that you don't even know. Strangers that you would, all you know is their screen name. And yet we exercise our power because we're, because power has us. Or we even just, we don't bully other people, we bully ourselves and we make ourselves feel bad about who we are and what we've done. Or later, we replay situations in our head that happened at work and in the retelling of the story, now we're the bully. And now we have all the power. And this is the danger of power. And so what do we look out for in our own lives? A few things we got to look out for, and then we're going to get to our last point. You've got to look out for harshness. Harshness. The way we treat others. The way that, you know, if you're mean in the treatment of other people, if you think the worst of other people, if you assume the worst of other people, if you're, you know, I, I, even this week I was thinking, like, how do I respond, like, for example, I'll try to pick a fun example. There's no fun examples here. But, you know, going through a drive through and I'm 100% sure I've communicated exactly what I want. <laughs> I've, I'm a gifted communicator. I've been very clear. And then I get my bag, and I make the mistake of not checking before I leave the parking lot. I get home, and my Whopper's missing. <laughs> I know. You can feel my pain, right? You can feel my pain. You, I'm not picking on Burger King. It happens everywhere. Even at Chick-fil-A, it happened once. Can you believe it? God's restaurant it happened. And, um, and so I get home. Now, Listen. Should I go back and get my burger? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I paid for it. Like, I'm going to go get my burger. But how much does that moment control my emotions and for how long? And what is my interaction like with them, these people who are just trying to do their best, when I get, right? So watch yourself. What's your heart? How do you talk to your children? How do you talk to spouses? How do you talk to each other? How do you talk about people in leadership? That harshness is something to look out for. Another thing to look out for is vengefulness. If you're the type of person that people say of you, never, ever get on that person's bad side. (laughs) That's not meekness. That's something else. If you're vengeful and you're known as someone to never cross and you'll always get your pound of flesh, be on guard. How about uncontrolled? If you're a person when rage fills your soul so that life is just a series of explosions that are occasioned by the fools in your life. And you easily, you easily justify your behavior because these fools, these fools, these, I like the word clowns, these clowns, these, these people, these you know, whatever. We use these words to justify our explosions of rage. And then the last one, and this is going to bring us to our last point, is grasping. If you're always grasping to be first, to get yours first, if you care little about how your actions affect other people's, beware. And this is what Jesus is saying. Well, here's the four, harshness, vengeful, uncontrolled, and grasping. But if I were to summarize Jesus' parable, and this is what we're going to close with, Jesus is saying, the meek gain everything because they grasp for nothing. The meek gain everything because they grasp for nothing. There's a story in the Old Testament. A man named Abraham has a son named Isaac. These are patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Isaac has twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older twin. And as Esau is born, clinging to his foot is his little brother Jacob. And so they name him Jacob, which can mean heel grabber, supplanter. And for the rest of Jacob's life, that's his character. That's who he is. He's always grasping after power, after woman, after money, after influence. Jacob is a grasper. And the truth is, is every single one of us has a little bit of Jacob in our hearts. We're grasping after respect. We're grasping after importance. We're grasping after love. We're grasping after comfort. We're grasping after power, after glory. But what does all our grasping cost us? Every now and then I like to mention Mickey, our dog, just so you know he's still alive, and, uh, and, and we, we still have him, and uh, Mickey is just over a year old, getting a little less dumb every day, I think, and, uh, but Mickey, uh, Mickey is a hound, and so he likes to play fetch, but he doesn't like to give up the thing that we're playing fetch with, so he'll run, he'll grab his rope in his mouth, and he'll run to me, and he'll get right at my, and he's begging me with his eyes, let's play, and I'm like, I'm down. And then I reach for it, and he runs away. I'm like, Mickey, you are the stupidest dog in the world. I can't play fetch with you if you won't let go of the thing in your mouth. The very thing you're grasping grasping onto is preventing you from receiving this joy of playing with your master. It's so true of us that many times the things that we grasp after and that we grasp to, we think that they're giving us joy, but they're actually preventing us from a greater joy. What the Lord ultimately has for for us. The meek grasp for nothing, but the reward for meekness is truly amazing because Jesus said, they shall inherit the earth. As we close, we're going to have a couple water baptisms and we're going to sing. Listen, what does it mean to inherit the earth? Some people say it means... The kingdom of God in our midst. And that's true. Some people think it means the new heavens and the new earth, that someday the meek will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And that's also true. But actually, what I think Jesus is saying here is this listen, that all the things that people want most in this world, the meek already possess. They already have it. What do people really want in this world if they're being honest? They want freedom, they want peace. They want joy and they want contentment. That's what they really want. That's the earth. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you're meek, then you have true freedom because you're free from strife and struggling and proving yourself. If you're meek, then you already have peace because you're, you don't have to, you don't have the need to get and gain. You can rest and you can have peace. You can have joy if you're meek because you see the good in others instead of always seeing the bad in others. And you can have contentment if you're meek because the meek enjoy what they have and are glad at what other people have. It's the meek who own the earth now, as one commentary says it this way, because their life is free. listen. The meek, the life of the meek, their life is free from the tyranny of just a little more. Just a little more. One more promotion. One more title. One more relationship. One more accomplishment. One more experience. The meek are free from it. You know what that means? They have everything everybody really wants, they inherit the earth. It's all theirs. How can we be meek? couple thoughts and we'll finish. Number one, we have to remember the first two beatitudes from the last two weeks because this is really a sequence that Jesus is teaching us. You have to be poor in spirit. We talked about two weeks ago, which means you have to understand your spiritual poverty. You can't save yourself, but Jesus saved you. Number two, we have to be willing to mourn, repent of our sin, and lament of the brokenness in the world around us, trusting that God sees all, knows all, and will do something about it. And if we will embrace spiritual poverty and a spirit of mourning, biblical mourning, then we will find the fruit of that, the inevitable fruit of that, will be: we will be surprisingly meek. We won't think too much of ourselves, but we'll think so much of others. The second thing that we have to do is we have to realize that meekness is a gift that we must receive by grace. It's not something you can earn. What a cruel irony to walk out of here this morning thinking I'm ambitious to be meek. Talk about a paradox an oxymoron. We don't get meekness through our effort and our determination and our ambition. We receive it as a gift from God, the grace of God. And then the third thing that we must do to be meek is as Jesus invited us to do, we must yoke ourselves to Jesus who was the incarnation of gentleness and lowliness. Look at how Paul says it in Philippians chapter two. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is in Jesus, who though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus grasped after nothing so that he could gain everything, not for himself, but for you and for me. And if Jesus had been unwilling to let go of what it meant to be above all in heaven and not come down to earth, and you and I would have no hope, but Jesus gave it all up so that we could gain all. And because he grasped nothing so we could gain everything, we can grasp after nothing and gain everything. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, the mighty God of the universe, showed up in meekness so that we might know what it looks like to be his people. Remember, It's not weakness. It's a willingness to trust in God's power and plan more than my power and plan, right? It's not about you not having power. It's about power not having you. And so what do we do? We grasp nothing so that we can gain everything for God. Let's pray together.